Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we celebrate Canada's gold medal at the World Junior Championships in Halifax. An overtime win over the Czechs capped off what was seen as a very successful tournament on and off the ice. How will it affect the scandals hanging over Hockey Canada going in? Canadian e-commerce giant Shopify is slashing meetings, claiming it will give back some 76,000 hours to its employees. But is it the right approach? Can we be smarter about when and why we meet? We find out why Canada appears to be selling more weapons to authoritarian regimes under the Trudeau Liberal government than it did under the Harper government. An eight-fold increase, one report finds. And that from a Prime Minister who spends a lot of time talking about human rights. How can that be? But first, Russian President Vladimir Putin today appealed for a ceasefire in Ukraine during the upcoming Orthodox Christmas period. An offer Ukraine quickly turned down. We ask where the war is headed as it nears the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion in February. Uh, we begin tonight with a surprise move of sorts today from Russian President Vladimir Putin. He called for a ceasefire uh, in the war in Ukraine to mark Orthodox Christmas, which comes up on the weekend. Well, the gift, so to speak, or the ploy, if you're uh, depending on how you look at it, was quickly rejected by Kiev. They say the only move Moscow should be making to end the war this Orthodox Christmas is to remove all its troops from Ukrainian territory. Uh, Putin did not appear to make his ceasefire order conditional on Ukrainian acceptance. U.S. President Joe Biden called Putin a hypocrite today. I'm reluctant to respond to anything Putin says. I found it interesting. Uh, he was ready to uh, um, bomb hospitals and nurseries and uh, um, churches and uh, with the uh, with the, with the, on the 25th and New Year's and. I mean, you know, I, I, I think he's trying to find some oxygen. Yeah, Ukrainian officials have previously dismissed Russian peace moves of this sort as playing for time to regroup their forces. They've been on the back foot for quite a while now. It comes on a day when the U.S. pledged some $3 billion in new military support for Ukraine. Biden says the U.S. and Germany will be sending armored combat vehicles to the country. We are going to provide the Bradley Infantry Fighting Vehicles, the United States, to the Ukrainians. And the Germans are going to provide the Martyr Infantry Fighting Vehicles that they have to the Ukrainians. Well, joining me now with more on this is Stephen Sademan. He's the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University in Ottawa. Thanks for your time. Happy New Year, Ben. Glad to be here. Well, 2023 sort of picks up where 2022 ended when it comes to the war in Ukraine. Uh, still more diplomatic. The war continues. Uh, but a, a offer of a brief ceasefire today from, from Moscow, from Vladimir Putin. Uh, what did you make of it? More of a proposal or more of a ploy? It's more of a ploy. I mean, uh, Christmas ceasefire, since it's the Orthodox Christmas, is a way for him to appeal at home to Orthodox Christian nationalism. It's a way for him to appeal to the international community to say, hey, I'm reasonable, but A, uh, one day truth doesn't really mean a whole lot, and B, if you invade another country and then say, hey, we're going to stop beating up on you, we're going to stay here, it's, it's not really much of an offer. It's like somebody busts into your house and beats up your family and then says, I'm going to stop beating you for a day, but I'm not leaving. It's, it's not really all that uh, meaningful in the grand scheme of things. So no surprise that the Ukrainians were quick to say, forget it, no thanks. Strategically, it might have made sense for them to take a, a day break. One of the questions they would have to ask themselves is, 
who benefits more from a break? Given the disarray of the Russians, can they actually use a, a day and a half break to meaningfully do anything? Would that 36 hours be valuable to the Ukrainians to get a, a breath? But I think they just don't, don't want to grant uh, the rind of legitimacy as being reasonable. So uh, they're just going to keep on fighting, taking advantage of whichever weaknesses they see in the Russian forces ahead of them. Biden, Joe Biden, the president said today that uh, that he thought that, well, first of all, he called Putin a hypocrite because uh, he mentioned, of course, that Russia had no problem continuing its uh, shelling of civilian infrastructure or civilians and infrastructure over uh, Christmas and New Year's uh, last week, the week before. Um, but he felt that Putin was looking to find some oxygen here. Do you agree with that? I think clearly Russia has been losing this war ever since they started it, uh, pretty much after their initial gains in the first few days. And so a ceasefire for a day, again, I think it's it would not have really much of an impact on the battlefield. It really is about appealing to his domestic audience. And again, m- making the onus of aggression to be put on the Ukrainians, which is kind of silly, again, given given how this war has played out thus far. It's one of the things that has been talked about at times, but not too, too often, which is the fairly significant role of religion in this fight. Um, this appeal for the ceasefire came from Patriarch Kirill, who's the head of the Russian Orthodox Church. Uh, there's been a split now between the Russian Orthodox Church and the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Uh, there is some fight over who's the better Christian going on in the background here, too, I would suspect. The key thing um, that's going on here is that, and in terms of the religious dynamics, is that Russia and Putin have insisted that the Ukrainians are just Russians. And the Orthodox Church has always, across that part of the world, has been comfortable with having multiple versions, the Greek Orthodox Church, the Armenian Orthodox Church, I guess, and certainly the Ukrainian Orthodox Church existing separately, but all under the same umbrella. But I think this is one ploy as part of a larger effort to, again, deny Ukraine its identity. And so what we've seen in Ukraine last month was you saw the Ukrainians themselves starting to celebrate Christmas on December 25th, mm-hmm. as opposed to January 6th, because they want to distance themselves from Russia in every way possible. And so I think this war is actually going to be fairly catastrophic in the long term for the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, that you're going to see people move away from it because their identities are changing, that the war is about many things, but because of what Putin has been doing, insisting that the Ukrainians don't exist, insisting that all their markers of identity are irrelevant, they're to come up with their own. And you see that with statues falling down and new statues being put up. Uh, you see that across the board in Ukraine. And so I think this is another big mistake by Putin because he's going to create further and further distance that will never be bridged after this past eight, nine years of conflict. Yeah, it's been interesting. I mean, the, the whole aspect of, of Patriarch Kirill's support for the war and his support of Vladimir, how the Russian regime has incorporated the Russian Orthodox Church into its sort of uh, mission, if you will, um, to to you know deny Ukraine an identity has been has been interesting. You get the impression that this again, as you mentioned earlier, that this really does play in to a domestic audience to say, hey, listen, we've offered this out of the goodness of our, you know, as 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 the as the chief Russian church uh, or as the Russian Orthodox Church and, uh, you know, look at the Ukrainians, they've said no. Yeah, I, I don't think I think that the, one of the challenges for us is to understand is that Russian Orthodox Church and the Orthodox Church in general has not been a peacemaker. We don't really tend to visualize them the same way we think of the Pope. Now, if we go back long enough in history, the Pope was pretty aggressive them, himself in the way, way, way back. But we kind of see leaders of religions to be peacemakers. But 
I don't think the, the leaders of the Orthodox Church in Russia see themselves as peacemakers. You mentioned this today on social media, Stephen. You were talking about the dangers of a frozen conflict. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the Russians have done this in other areas, whether it be in Moldova, in Georgia. This is something that they're skilled at. Um, it looks like as we head you know, towards a bit of a stalemate here that the, the Russians may have an interest in trying to just stop this and, you know, just keep everything frozen where it is. And that, of course, destabilizes Ukraine. Well, we've been living with a semi-frozen conflict since 2014 as the Russians uh, not only seized Crimea, but then essentially occupied much of the Donbass region. And they, they called it separatist, but we know that this was largely a Russian affair. And this is similar to what they did in other places where ever since the end of the Cold War, wherever Russian troops were left behind or wherever Russian troops tended to occupy, you had disorder under their umbrella. So they never pulled their troops out of what was Moldova, because Moldova used to be part of the Soviet Union. Uh, in other parts of the former Soviet space, they didn't pull their troops out, but they didn't pull out there. And so Transnistria has always been this weird place where it's not really a Moldovan control. The Russians essentially... Uh, that their military units there essentially control things, that separatists within Georgia, both in Abkhazia and South Ossetia, got support from the Russians. And as a result, these are places that their original countries, whether that's Moldova or Georgia, can't really exert control, that nobody really exerts a lot of control. So apparently a few years ago, if you would get a counterfeit $20 American bill, it was probably from South Ossetia. That, that happened to be the place where a lot of counterfeiting, because there's there's nobody really monitoring or enforcing uh, regulations, laws, or whatever. And so that's been something the Russians have done, and they use that as wedges to exert influence and cause trouble for Georgia and Moldova. And this happened in a few other places as well, but those were the primary places. They replayed this in 2014. The difference was the Ukrainians never stopped fighting. We appreciate it now in the past year, but we didn't really weren't paying attention to from 2014 to 2000 early 2022, where the the Ukrainians kept fighting. So they were semi-frozen, where these territories were kind of controlled by the Russians, kind of places where there was disorder, but there was still fighting going on, as opposed to some of these other places. And so the Russians would love to have the Donbass regions and Crimea and whatever new territory they conquered in February, March of last year to be at peace within the Russian sphere. And the Ukrainians want to deny that, and that makes sense. It's their territory. And it would be trouble to have hunks of your territory occupied by a foreign force that is engaged in mass rape, a deportation and abduction of children, and all the rest of the Russians have been doing. We've been seeing uh, news, there's another, no more news today, of a $3 billion U.S. uh, military Mm -hmm. package to Ukraine. We're seeing allies of Ukraine start to deliver heavier weapons, maybe not all the weapons Ukraine have been asking for, um, but we're seeing a bit of a shift. What what do you see happening with, with bigger and heavier weaponry, more ammunition going in on the Ukrainian side. The Russian side still looks depleted. I was watching something about their soldiers complaining about having no supplies being sent to the front line with nothing uh, these days. Where do you see that playing out in the next uh, six months or so? Sure. Well, one of the things that Putin was counting on was that the cold winter would cause the Europeans to bend to his will, to, to seek out energy supplies by stopping setting support to the Ukrainians. And we see the opposite of that. And part of that is, ironically, may have climate change to thank for that, which is that it's a very, very warm winter, which means that the European countries are less dependent on imports from Russia. And in fact, I saw some of the other data on how true it was, but it seems like the Germans are now entirely independent from, from Russian energy supplies, which is a big shift. Uh, so it's the loss of money for the Russians, but it's also a loss of influence. Uh, there's been a lot of pressure placed on Germany because for some reason, Germany has 
decided that they can't send tanks unless somebody else sends tanks. And so that's led to sort of a semi-farcical discussion the past few days on social media about whether the new weapon systems that the French are sending count as tanks. Right. Um, yeah. what, what does a tank look like? Yeah, exactly. What does a tank look like? And if it has wheels, is it a tank? And, and yeah. so the Russian system has wheels. The United States is now sending Bradley infantry riding vehicles, which are technically seen as not being tanks because they don't have a big gun, but they do have tracks and they do have armor and they, they're much more capable than the things that were the British were sending across the no man's land during World War I that were the initial things that got to be called tanks. So these are much heavier weapon systems, which are much better at defending the troops inside of them and also at taking advantage of breakthroughs and being more maneuverable in the battlefields. Because one of the things you want to do at this point in time for the Ukrainians is to break through the Russian lines and then attack people from behind. And these kinds of fast-moving, heavy-armored vehicles are good at that. They may not be good at taking on tanks themselves, although both of them can take on tanks. Uh, they're not quite tanks, not Abrams tanks, not Leopard tanks, but they're heavy, powerful weapon systems that will enable the Ukrainians to be more dangerous on the battlefield, to be able to break through and cut off the Russian troops. And you mentioned that the Russians are undersupplied and definitely undermoraled, if there's such a word as undermoraled. And as a result of that, you know, if you see something that looks like a tank, you're not going to actually look at your the Twitter to figure out whether it's a tank or not. You're going to surrender. And particularly if it's facing you from behind. And that's really what they want to do is they want to break through and have these these weapon systems come at the troops from behind. And then you get, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of soldiers surrender. And that would be both good for winning the battlefield, but also winning the larger political campaign of trying to prove the Russians that they're not up to this. And nothing wins more international support than winning. So one reason why this is happening now is that the Ukrainians have managed to keep on doing really well in the battlefield. And so that means that other countries are more willing to invest in them because they're investing in winter. And they'll continue to fight over uh, over this weekend, despite um, calls from Moscow for potentially a ceasefire. Stephen Sabin, thank you so much for your for your time on this and your perspective. Sure, my pleasure, Ben. Happy New Year. Oh, you couldn't have written a better ending. Uh, Canada is up to nothing. They give up two quick goals to the Czechs. You're thinking, oh, no, this is this is not going to work out. And then it does. At 6.44, the first overtime period, Dylan Gunther of the Arizona Coyotes um, scores that that winner on a two-on-one uh, to win the game. Three to two. Another gold medal, our 20th. 20th. I think there's only been 28 tournaments. 20th. Back-to-back. Canada's back always great. It capped off really what was a wildly successful World Juniors in Halifax and Moncton. The crowds were great. The hockey was even better. And don't forget, this all started under a bit of a cloud, under a real big cloud. All the scandals that had embroiled Hockey Canada and junior hockey over the past little while. Sponsors leaving and so forth. Um, It'd be interesting to see what the impact of the success of this tournament has on that Because as you know, if you've just watched the World Cup, for instance, as often happens, uh, there was a lot of talk about human rights and so on in Qatar. And then all of a sudden the game started, the World Cup started, the the sports started, and we stopped talking about it. I don't get the impression Hockey Canada is going to get off that easily. There's a lot still to come here. But uh, there is a new board in place at Hockey Canada. The old one resigned, as you know, back uh, about a month and a bit ago. Um, 
and they just put on a really good show in Halifax. So what does that all mean uh, to junior hockey and Hockey Canada? Joining me now with more on that is Ben Steiner. He's a sports journalist with uh, Daily Hive in Toronto. Ben, what a night. I imagine you were, I know you were watching the game. Wow. They didn't, it didn't have to be that tough. It didn't have to be that tough. It didn't have to be that tough at all for Canada. And thanks so much for, for having me on tonight to chat about this game because that was an iconic World Juniors gold medal game. And I had a sneaky feeling that when Canada was up to nothing, that maybe, just maybe it wouldn't last. The team was dominating, but there's always that bit of doubt. Of course, Czechia beat Canada in the first game of the tournament, and Canada had never won a World Junior Championship after losing the first game of the tournament. So I had a sneaky feeling that it might get a little bit timid at the end, and that sneaky feeling turned out to be true, and it created a pretty memorable moment for Canadian hockey fans. It did, and they did the same thing against Slovakia in the last in the semifinals. They they gave up kind of some some strange goals when they really should have won the game. Uh, it was a weird tournament for this team because you always thought they looked fantastic, but there was always a bit of doubt with this team. An exceptionally talented team on paper, of course, headlined by former exceptional status players Shane Wright and current ex- exceptional status player Connor Bedard and Bedard did not disappoint. It was Bedard's tournament, and we haven't seen anything like it before. He smashed basically every World Junior record there is to, and he was there once again in the game today. Sure, he had a little bit more defensive attention on him. Czechia did a very good job to make sure that he didn't have the same sort of impact like he did against Slovakia, like he did against the United States, like he did throughout the tournament. But Connor Bedard, alongside Dylan Genther, of course, two goals for him, including the overtime winner. It's a talented team, But there was always maybe a bit of doubt with this team because it was so focused on Connor Bedard and was so maybe top-heavy with this team. So it it wasn't the dominating Team Canada that we've seen in the past, but it was certainly a a Team Canada that was strong. Canada's always going to be strong at this tournament. And in the the end, they proved that they were a good enough team to to win this tournament. Uh, They certainly faced their difficulties throughout the tournament, but quite a good story for them to come away with the gold medal but I also think it's an attribute to just where the world is going at the world junior level because teams like Slovakia teams like the Czech Republic they haven't always competed at that same level as the Canada's the U.S. is the Sweden's the Finland's the Russia when when they're at the tournament or the Soviet Union in earlier editions of the tournament so it's great to see these other smaller hockey nations having success of course this being Czechia's best ever result since 2001 when they when they won the tournament so it's certainly yeah. nice to see these tournaments, these teams having a lot of success, um, and it certainly raises raises the difficulty for Canada. Yeah, it's always a reminder of how time flies when uh, when someone mentioned tonight that not a single member, obviously not a single member of the Czechia team was alive when they when they did that when they won that uh, tournament back in two thousand and one. Uh, yeah, there was a lot of parity. I think that was what, uh, and you know, when you look at the the crowd reaction, I mean, I think it was going to be a bit of a given that uh, the Maritimes would put on a really good show for this, that there would be a lot of support. Uh, those are, you know, they really are, despite not having any pro sports teams, or at least professional, top-notch professional sports teams, they are great sports towns. It really looked like a, a successful tournament on and off the ice, uh, from afar at least. I mean, I'm way out here in Victoria, but it looked like a really successful tournament this time around. I think it was, and I think it was sort of the perfect location for this tournament, especially after you had a very recent World Junior Tournament that didn't have great attendance numbers in the summer in Alberta. And then you have this tournament that comes soon after, and Hockey Canada still 
in the middle of all of the issues that surround Hockey Canada and just the game in this country. And so I think that the smaller venues, the smaller towns, um, IHF President Luke Tardif didn't want to say small town, but they are smaller municipalities than the likes of Toronto and Vancouver and Montreal, Calgary, Edmonton, the major cities that have hosted the tournament in the past. So I do think it was the perfect location for this year's edition of the tournament, but there's no doubt that in future editions that Canada can fill out 20,000-person arenas for at least the Canada Games. But I think the special thing about this tournament was the other nations got that strong support, and shout-out to Halifax and Moncton for sending out a lot of fans for um, those smaller nations, including the relegation games between Austria and Latvia getting over 5,000 fans a game. That's great. I mean, I remember seeing um, one of the games in a more recent World Junior Championships here in Victoria. We, you know, this it's about a 5,000-seat stadium. That was packed, too, for Finland Sweden. And those were really good games. I mean, when you have the smaller rink, the atmosphere really charges up, right? I mean, I know the, when you have Canada playing in big cities and big arenas, you know, they'll always draw the crowds. But sometimes the smaller game, the, the nations that aren't quite as favored or don't have as big fan support, sometimes that falls a bit short when they play the tournaments in big NHL-sized rinks. So it's nice to see uh, fans pack out those rinks for the smaller teams because, of, you know, it's kind of the whole spirit of it. What do you think, Ben? I mean, going into this tournament, there was a lot of talk about the scandals facing Hockey Canada. Obviously, having a successful tournament was a, was a given. And this one has been successful. What do you think happens now? I mean, it, was, it is a chance, I guess, for Hockey Canada to reset. They have a new board of directors. They're going to try and head in a different direction. There's still a lot of issues out there. But I guess a successful tournament was going to be key uh, to trying to start this process of rehabilitation for the organization. I think having a successful tournament was key, but I also think that there was, it was still very evident at this tournament that the sponsors aren't there. We didn't see the same advertising both on the broadcast and no, noticeably on this the advertising boards along the ice. They didn't use the digital ad boards that the NHL uses, and they had Maple Leafs and municipalities and tournament spots and just regular tournament advertisements on the the boards, and they didn't have those, the the Tim Hortons, the Bells that we're we're used to because those sponsors have pulled out. So it's going to take a while for Hockey Canada to get back to the point that it was, but I do believe that it is moving in the right direction. And I, IIHF President Luke Tardif said as such on the broadcast as well, the TSN's James Duffy, that there seems to be a positive movement with the new board, with the new president as well. Things can't get much worse, but there has to be a focus on safe sport and just treating hockey as what it is in this country and kind of taking a step back and reestablishing sort of the connection to hockey and hockey's culture. Yeah. And, um, you know, you, it was a reminder, I think, watching those games, why we love the, why we love the junior tournament, right. And why it's such a, such an important part of sort of the holiday season in this country. And that uh, the fact that it had been tainted uh, was difficult. It was difficult. And I feel like a lot of people out there, whether they be, you know, big, big fans or not felt uh, that uh, this was kind of a, you know, this this was something that had to be dealt with. It was serious. It was a serious situation. It had to be dealt with, and it didn't matter how much we enjoyed the game. That there needed to be answers to some of these questions. It was, but it was fun to see, um, you know, a new generation out there enjoying winning and playing and so on. Tell me a bit about Connor Bedard because this is going to be. We're going to talk about this. You know, my I'm from Montreal. My dad's a diehard Habs fan, and he's. They're already thinking, wow, the team's looking terrible all of a sudden. What what about Connor Bedard? <laughs> We're going to be talking about him a lot for the next little while. I get the impression. 
Well, don't forget his name because he's going to be pretty prominent in hockey over the next, I would even fathom to say, 25 years that he's going to be, I think, probably the best player in hockey, number one by basically everybody's scouting books. And he did this exceptional tournament at 17 years old. He's playing against 19-year-olds out there in the WHL with the Regina Pats. He's playing against 20-year-olds as well, and he's absolutely dominating. He's from North Vancouver. He strived with the West Van Hockey Academy before entering the WHL as the first exceptional status player. So he was able to step into that league at 15 years old, and he dominated in his rookie season as well. It was an abbreviated season with the Regina Pats, but 28 points in 15 games in his first season, and now he's just been exceptional. 28 games this season in Regina, while he scored 64 points. We've not really seen anything like it since maybe Connor McDavid. That goal he scored to win against uh, win the semifinals uh, game against the Slovaks was was just mind-blowing. It was such a great goal. He's astounding to watch. It leaves you speechless when you see him just fake out defenders and find his way through. When you look and there's three guys in front of him, uh, most players aren't finding their way through that, but Connor Bedard seems to find a way whenever he's on the puck. And even though he was getting a lot of attention tonight defensively, he adjusted and he was still able to thrive. But he was also very humble in his post-game interview. He said that this isn't about him, this is about the team. Yeah, I know he's got that part of his game down pat already. They sort of don't say much in interviews. He says very, he says very little. Um, uh, this is a bit of a crystal ball question, but where where should he wind up? I mean, this year, you know, Edmonton's had a lot of number one draft picks over the years. Toronto had a couple of uh, runs at the Montreal last year. Uh, where would be the best place for him to end up? You look at the sort of the, the teams at the bottom of the standings. There are some interesting options there there are some less fortunate ones if specifically if you're a canadian hockey fan i would say that uh, probably the best spot for him to end up would be the chicago blackhawks they're completely tanking this season in terms of their performance in the nhl they're aiming for that top spot they've still got a few years left with guys like jonathan taves and patrick kane and they're a prominent hockey market that is an attractive hockey market and will be able to market a player and move towards building a player like Connor Bedard up towards the Stanley Cup and towards hopefully uh, Olympic Games and World Championships uh, and World Cups of Hockey in the future as well, still wearing that, that Canadian jersey. Um, so I would say Chicago probably the best spot for him, the worst spot being Arizona. Arizona playing in a college arena at the University of Arizona for the next little while, and I don't think that would be ideal for him. Yeah, I'd rather. No offense to uh, to the fine folks of Columbus either, but I, I don't think Connor Bedard should wind up there. I, uh, we'll see where he goes. Listen, it's going to be one great um, draft. It's going to be really exciting to see who picks first. Uh, ben Steiner, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you very much for having me. Now, if you have an office job, this is going to be a subject that you will very much identify with. I know when I did. I couldn't believe when I briefly uh, left journalism to go into another field. I couldn't believe the amount of meetings I found myself in. I mean, literally wall-to-wall meetings some days. From the moment the day started at 8.30 or 8 or 9 to 5 or 6, meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting. The only time you ever got your work done was when the meetings were over at the end of the day or earlier in the day. And certainly uh, when we all found ourselves working remotely, that skyrocketed. These numbers will come as no surprise to you. 
since 2020, the time spent in Teams meetings increased by 252%, and Zoom meetings increased by 3,300%. These are American numbers, but still, you get the idea. Productivity levels, though, dropped. Part of the reason was we were spending a lot of time in meetings that made no sense. They weren't, you know, there are good meetings and there are bad meetings. There are meetings that feel like they're productive and meetings where you feel like, what am I doing here? Well, here's a TED Talk from a gentleman named Ted Brady. It's pre-pandemic, but no less insightful. Picture this. It's Monday morning. You're at the office. You're settling in for the day of work. And this guy that you sort of recognize from down the hall walks right into your cubicle and he steals your chair doesn't say a word, just rolls away with it. Doesn't give you any information about why he took your chair out of all the other chairs that are out there. Doesn't acknowledge the fact that you might need your chair to get some work done today. You wouldn't stand for it. You'd make a stink. You'd follow that guy back to his cubicle, and you'd say, why my chair? Okay, so now it's Tuesday morning, and you're at the office. And a meeting invitation pops up in your calendar. (laughs) And it's from this woman who you kind of know from down the hall, And the subject line references some project you heard a little bit about, but there's no agenda. There's no information about why you were invited to the meeting, and yet you accept the meeting invitation, and you go. And when this highly unproductive session is over, you go back to your desk, and you stand at your desk, and you say, boy, I wish I had those two hours back. Like, I wish I had my chair back. (laughs) Every day, we allow our coworkers, who are otherwise very, very nice people, to steal from us. And I'm talking about something far more valuable than office furniture. I'm talking about time. Your time. David Brady, a TED Talk. That's uh, that's from a while back, but, you know, you get the point. Well, word this week that one major Canadian company, e-commerce giant Shopify, is putting tackling meeting creep at the top of its resolution list for 2023, saying some 76,000 500 hours, that's a lot of hours, previously set aside for meetings, will now be used for other work. How will they do it, you wonder? All recurring meetings with more than two people are gone for good. No meetings at all can be held on Wednesdays. And all those big team meetings, you know those ones on Zoom, right? All those big team gatherings of 50 people or more are set aside for six hours only, a six-hour window, on Thursdays only and only one per week. Employees are also encouraged to decline meetings if they feel it's necessary. So they're trying to change the culture around meetings. So is that the right approach? Joining me now is Stephen Rogelberg. He's Chancellor's Professor of Organizational Science, Psychology, and Business at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. He's also author of the bestseller, The Surprising Science of Meetings, a number one leadership book according to the Washington Post. Thank you for your time tonight. It's my pleasure. It's always a good time to talk about meetings. It is. What got you, I mean, you know, to sit down and, and really put all your thoughts into, into a book uh, means you had to have thought about meetings for a long time. What, what, did, what was your kind of impetus to try and to see meetings as something that really needed um, some good insight? As an organizational psychologist, I'm really interested in studying topics of great importance, very practically relevant and also cause a lot of pain um, with the ultimate hope of making it better. And so meetings kind of checks all those boxes. They are ever present and yet they're causing a lot of pain. And I would argue that meetings are absolutely essential to organizational success. 
Yeah, I think that therein lies the problem, right? We know they're essential. We just know when we've had too many of them. And I think uh, what one realized during the height of the pandemic, when everyone was working remotely, there was a real meeting creep, wasn't there? There was. Um, yeah, meeting activity has increased dramatically during the pandemic. You know, I'd like to say it was for benevolent reasons, but in many regards, you know, there were two main factors. One was, you know, with people not present, they needed more formal mechanisms to coordinate. Another force, which is not the benevolent one, is I think a lot of managers realized they didn't trust their people. And we didn't see them regularly. They started scheduling lots of meetings to keep checking on them. And so that also explains this creep. Now, the good news is that while meeting activity increased dramatically, meeting length actually decreased a bit. We're noticing now that companies, I guess, now that we're coming out of that uh, height of the pandemic time and we're entering a period where more people are back in the office, more people are working sort of hybrid schedules, uh, companies are really trying to reassess now the purpose and practicality of those meetings. So I do think that companies are absolutely taking an interest in the topic. As someone who studies meetings, obviously, I've never seen a period of time in the last 20 years where there has been so much interest in the topic. In many regards, though, I don't feel like companies are trying to solve the problem in a very thoughtful way. They are just looking for quick fixes. You know, no more meetings on this day. And those solutions are just, they're just uninspired in many regards. How so? How so? I, this is a difficult one. As you mentioned earlier, right. meetings, are, good meetings are essential and yes. bad, meeting, bad meetings are detrimental. So right. it's a fine line, right? It is. So I'm going to I'm going to use an analogy that's perfect for this time of year. I'm going to liken this all to New Year's resolutions, right? So we all have got into the habit of making New Year's resolutions. A very common one is I'm going to lose weight, right? Or I'm going to eliminate booze or meat or something like that. So let's say that an individual says, I'm going to cut out meat. All right. Sounds well-intentioned. They're not going to succeed. It's Those are not the types of resolutions that ever work. But there's often unintended consequences if you cut out meat, right? There's actually things that you need to do and when you take something out of your diet like that. What we know about resolutions is that if you really want to help someone lose weight, really what we want them to do is develop healthy life habits and because those sustain themselves over time. All right, bringing this back to meetings. What we want organizations to do is not just to go on this dramatic diet because that's not going to sustain itself. We want organizations to start creating good, healthy habits around meetings and charting a new future of work from a collaboration perspective where meetings will be discussed as being exciting, engaging, inclusive. And that can happen. You know, that's where the science is incredibly helpful. But changing the ecosystem of an organization takes a lot more work than just saying no more meetings on Tuesdays. I was interested. The Shopify one made a lot of uh, headlines in Canada. Obviously, Shopify is a big company in this country. So when they came out saying so, uh, in essence, there they were remo they, removing all recurring meetings with more than two people in perpetuity. So right. those regularly scheduled meetings done, uh, re-upping a rule that no meetings at all can be held on Wednesdays. So that frees up everyone's time. And big meetings of more than 50 people will get um, limited to a six-hour window on Thursdays with a limit of one per week. Is, is it helpful to set those kinds of parameters at least? I love that they're trying to come up with new approaches 
trying not to just resort to business as usual. I really like that. I com- I really commend them on that. But these types of blanket rules, I'm not convinced at all that they're not going to have a host of unintended negative consequences. You know, meetings, while we complain about them, and we should, really what our complaints are about is wasted time in meetings. It's not meetings in and of themselves, right? Humans are social creatures. Meeting with humans is fundamental to our DNA. We don't like wasting time. So the problem is fundamentally not meetings. It's wasted time in meetings. And so the solutions that Shopify are advocating are really just about reducing quantity, not about quality. And I want to focus on quality. I want to focus on quality. I want to focus on the ecosystem uh, uh, that meetings exist, come up with a more thoughtful, holistic strategy. You know, after all, meetings are fundamentally shared experiences between leaders and their people. Thus, I want the leaders and their people to actually talk about what makes sense for them, right? What meetings should they keep? I want them to decide. I don't need a top-down edict. I want leaders to start getting into the habit of having these meaningful conversations around, is this meeting necessary? How long should this be? Who should be there? What types of norms do we want to have in meetings, right? Those are the types of conversations that can fundamentally change norms. And then those norms will sustain themselves over time. I guess if you're an employee or a manager and you're looking at the, maybe you don't get a blanket edict. Maybe you're just trying to, as you pointed out, adjust the culture a little bit. So people feel comfortable saying, you know what, that meeting isn't necessary. Send me an email. Um, How do you recognize when a meeting is worthwhile? What really is the secret to a good meeting? Well, um, you know, before break, you actually identify a number of really important characteristics. You know, if the meeting is addressing topics of relevance to you, that's a checkbox. If the leader is actively embracing their role as a steward of others' time, which is what a leader should do in a meeting, then that meeting potentially could be very valuable, right? Because a good steward is facilitating, they're engaging, they're integrating, they're encouraging conflict, but constructive conflict. They make sure at the end of the meeting that there's actually a proper close where what was discussed is reified. The directly responsible individuals for all the action items are identified so that no one leads the meet, leaves the meeting wondering what actually will happen. So basically, an excellent meeting is one in which It's compelling. The right people are at the table. The meeting is facilitated and led extremely well. And it has a proper close so that, again, we we are sure that action takes place. So those are some of the more broad characteristics. There's other elements that can really elevate a meeting. Do you want me to share something a little bit unique about agendas? Absolutely. I mean, agendas, no agenda, no attenda. That was one of those things that came up during the pandemic. If you don't have an agenda, I'm not going to be there. Well, interestingly, my research shows that having an agenda in and of itself actually does not predict meeting effectiveness. Uh And when you stop and reflect, that's really not a surprise. So often agendas are recycled meeting to meeting. That's not going to be helpful. And what really matters much more than an agenda is what's on the agenda. Is it truly compelling? And what matters even more is how that agenda is facilitated. Those are the things that actually matter more than having a piece of paper with a bunch of topics on it. In fact, I even have an innovation in agendas 
You you want to hear about that? Absolutely. I, I I've seen so many recycled agendas that I'd love yeah, to hear about. You're it. Not change. alone. Yes. So here's an innovation in agendas, and I actually I'm excited to tell you about this because I think it really illustrates a much more thoughtful approach to meetings, and I think you'll see how it can really amplify outcomes. Instead of structuring an agenda as a set of topics to be discussed, what I want to encourage leaders to do is to structure their agenda as a set of questions to be answered. By structuring your agenda as a set of questions to be answered, now you really have to think. You have to think about what you're really hoping to achieve. By framing your agenda as questions, you know who to invite to the meeting. They're relevant to the questions. By framing the agenda as questions, you know if the meeting has been successful because the questions have been answered. By framing your agenda as questions, you create an engaging challenge for people. And if you just can't think of any questions, what do you think that tells you? No need to meet. (laughs) No No need need to meet. meet. No need to meet. So that's an approach that can really elevate meetings. But you can see that that's a thought-provoking approach, right? That requires a leader to take a minute and to think. And that's the type of behavior that, I want organizations to start fostering. And so again, that's why my reaction to just saying, yeah, we're cutting meetings, no meetings on this date. It's just not fundamentally addressing what is frustrating to people about meetings. Yeah. I I mean, it's the time and and it's the and it's the quantity i th- i think really what what struck me i mean we used to have at one point a place where i worked we used to have meetings about meetings we'd have we'd meet to talk about the meeting which was uh and you just found yourself with no time to do you did your work before and after your workout your work day right because you had so many meetings in between what would you like to see in 2023 when it comes to this reassessment of how meetings work i think sometimes you know everything always bounces too far back the other way so now we're demonizing meetings right whereas you're right they are they can be very constructive if done properly so you wouldn't want to see organizations simply starting to to sort of uh get rid of them but to improve them which is a bigger challenge yeah getting rid of meetings would be a tremendous setback for organizations. Meetings are an evolution away from the industrial revolution that was all command and control, right? Meetings are a recognition that voice matters, that we want to engage with people. Meetings are where organizational democracy takes place. So we don't want to eliminate meetings. We just want to make them better. So here's what I would tell Shopify and others. I'd say, first of all, let's do a meeting culture assessment. Let's see where we are, where we're at. Let's collect data from employees about what's working, what's not working. Let's use that meeting culture assessment to help drive solutions, as well as this meeting culture assessment can serve as a baseline for us to assess whether our changes are having positive results. Next, I want to charge every leader in the company to start meeting with her people to talk about norms around meetings, when to meet, not to meet, how long a meeting should be, who invite, things like that. Then I want to change organizational systems so that 60 minutes is no longer the default time for a meeting. That makes no sense. Let's create shorter meeting times. I want to start training people. Right now, only around 20% of managers ever receive any training in meetings. This is an incredible blind spot for organizations. So let's make sure that we level up skills. You know, I want to also build into all the employee engagement surveys, content around meetings so that we can start having feedback and accountability systems so that people actually know how they're doing in meetings. And finally, you know, I want someone on the leadership team to become the owner 
of meetings for an organization. Meetings are an incredibly expensive process for organizations. We have no one that owns meetings. So I want to assign someone. It could be a chief operating officer with this responsibility. It could be the chief talent officer. But I want that person to own meetings, be the face of meetings, and constantly be monitoring and improving the ecosystem around meetings. So for 2023, let's not get rid of them. Let's just take this opportunity to make them better. That's Steve Rogelberg. Stephen Rogelberg, uh, author of The Surprising Science of Meetings. Thank you so much for your time tonight. You're very welcome. Thank you so much. This is an interesting story. You know, the Trudeau government, of course, makes a lot of hay about standing up for human rights. They talk about it incessantly. And I think they do a relatively good job at it, right? I mean, it is part of their brand, if you'll forgive that term. Uh, But a new report from the newly launched Investigative Journalism Foundation here in Canada, a very good thing, by the way, turned up some surprising stats when it comes to the sale of weapons to authoritarian regimes by this country. Journalist Kate Schneider found that Canada is selling on average $1.3 billion in weapons to authoritarian regimes per year, and that would represent an eight-fold jump from what was going on under Stephen Harper's tenure as Premier, Prime Minister, rather, when Canada exported an average of $161 million in weapons to authoritarian countries per year back then. Now, part of it was a big deal that the Harper government signed with Saudi Arabia to sell them uh, uh, labs, light-armored vehicles. Uh, but it, it goes beyond that. Uh, sales to authoritarian countries also made up 66% of all non-U.S. bound exports on average per year between 2016 and 2021. And that's up from an average of 27% during Harper's tenure from 2006 to 2015. That despite the fact that the Prime Minister has long said that it's extremely important uh, that the terms of Canada's expectations of non-violation of human rights are always respected when it comes to negotiating these arms deal and deals. And Kate Schneider, who wrote that article, a uh, journalist with the newly launched Investigative Journalism Foundation here in Canada, joins me now with the details. Thank you for your time. Thanks so much. It's my pleasure to be here. The Trudeau government talks a lot about human rights. We've known that for many, many years. Uh, one of the issues that's often come up, I know human rights organizations have been concerned, is weapon sales. Uh, you took a good look into this. What were you looking to find? What did you set out to find? Yeah, so um, you're, you're entirely right. The, the topic of weapon sales in Canada has been covered in the past. In, in the past couple of years, most of the focus has been on weapon sales to Saudi Arabia. And it's also something that I focus quite a lot about in this article, just because of the pure scale of the, the exports going to Saudi, uh, Saudi Arabia. But what I was trying to look at with, with this article is um, kind of a, a broader approach. We've heard all of these things back in, you know, especially like 2018, about criticisms directed at the Trudeau government um, for those exports to Saudi. But was this, you know, trend also true for other authoritarian countries? And when I took a look at kind of all countries that Canada exports to, I guess my, my main kind of finding, which I, I was not expecting to find this, this is really, it was quite shocking to me that under uh, Justin Trudeau, weapon sales on average per year have been eight times more to authoritarian countries specifically than those under Stephen Harper's government. That is interesting because we do always talk about Saudi Arabia and that big deal um, for the uh, for the vehicles, for the armored vehicles. Uh, but how, how has that manifested itself? Has it happened uh, all at once or has this been sort of a drip drip of new deals? Uh, I know that you mentioned Algeria and the UAE. Uh, these are some of the countries that certainly would, would raise concern for human rights groups. Is that really um, where these weapons are going to countries such as Saudi Arabia, Algeria, UAE and so on? Yes, absolutely. Um, so on average per year under Trudeau's government, 66% of all non-US bound exports have gone to authoritarian countries 
And out of all exports, so 56% has been Saudi Arabia specifically. Um, So again, it makes sense that uh, Saudi Arabia has been kind of the the focus of all this uh, media coverage in the past because it is the largest authoritarian recipient by far. But yes, I mean, if you look at the export trends under Trudeau as well, you, you do see that there is still, you know, not to the same scale as to Saudi Arabia, but other countries like the UAE and Algeria, there have been fairly consistent exports over the past couple of years. Uh, and it's it's really not just, you know, there was one kind of outlier year where, you know, authoritarian countries such as the ones I've mentioned have had a huge spike in exports. It's really been fairly consistently much higher under Trudeau than under Harper, other other previous governments. I, I, I know you approached the government to find out what they would say about this. Uh, what was their response? Uh, because they often talk about how they've put new controls in place to make sure we're not selling weapons to regimes that we shouldn't be. Uh, what did they have to say about your reporting? Yeah, so um, I reached out to someone at uh, Global Affairs Canada. They, you know, did point to some of the uh, advances that Canada has, you know, kind of on the surface made towards uh, enshrining protections for for human rights. So, for example, back in 2019, Canada finally signed on to this international agreement called the Arms Trade Treaty. And under that, any government that signs on to it is required to, uh, you know, they're committing to assessing whether human rights abuses, there's the potential for those uh, before they sign off on the export permits to send over these uh, this military uh, weapons and equipment. However, uh, a lot of the other experts I talked to said that, you know, even though kind of they're giving the image or going through the motions of seeming to consider human rights more, a lot of uh, academic and nonprofit experts that I, I, I talked to seemed concerned that these were really just formalities. There isn't really an obligation to like the the obligation is really just to kind of consider the possibility, but there's no uh, you know definitive for sure uh, we have to ban all exports, um, and that is kind of what a lot of these um, academic experts, uh, activists, a lot of nonprofit organizations have been calling for. So in a nutshell, uh, since 2015, we've seen an increase in the percentage of weapons that we're selling to authoritarian regimes. Saudi Arabia being the big chunk of it, but not the only one. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I think that was kind of the. Like I said, there's been lots of media coverage in the past on Saudi Arabia, but I think what I really wanted to point to is, yes, absolutely, you know, we should focus on the, the exports going to Saudi Arabia, but it is it is one of many, for sure, one of many authoritarian countries that have received Canadian-made weapons. Uh, it, it does, though. I mean, if, if we've put new restrictions in place, or at least we put new uh, safeguards in place. Uh, what did the government have to say about why it is that we're selling when you approach them with this statistic? Uh, it's hard to refute, right? I mean, the, the proof is in the numbers. Yeah. So uh, one of the things is that back in uh, late 2018, amid all this criticism, the government actually did issue a ban on new export permits to Saudi Arabia. It's also important to note that this ban covered any new export permits, ones that were already signed that were still active, and they last for up to five years. Those were not covered under the ban. So, you know, there were still actually quite quite a large number of exports going to Saudi Arabia. Um, but then in early 2020, they, they lifted this ban after doing a, a government review of the, you know, the likelihood that human rights abuses were being committed. And basically, this government review concluded that there was no evidence that the specific Canadian-made weapons that were being exported to Saudi were being used to commit human rights abuses. So you'll speak to many uh, experts and they'll say, well, a lot of 
you know, there isn't necessarily evidence that the specific ones that were part of the 15 billion deal that was signed over five years ago, that these are being used to commit human rights abuses in Yemen. But they argue that there should still be a ban because there is the potential for that use in the future. Their argument, um, at least some of the ones that I spoke to, was that you know, it doesn't matter whether these specific Canadian-made weapons are being used specifically. In general, we are seeing that weapons exported from other countries to Saudi Arabia are being used for human rights abuses by Saudi forces in Yemen. Yeah, the government has kind of claimed, oh, in the past, there isn't too much evidence. But the, the activists um, that I've spoken to have mainly focused on that future potential for abuse. Kate, when you look at this, I mean, I guess the big argument here is that there's diplomacy involved. Um, our weapons deals with Saudi Arabia go back a long time. And there's jobs involved as well in, in this country. Uh, are those the roadblocks, as far as you can tell, in terms of not taking a tougher stance uh, on some of these issues? Yes, absolutely. I think jobs seem to be one of the top considerations for why the government might not want to cancel this contract with Saudi Arabia or just, you know, stop exports to authoritarian countries in general. For example, the the company that made the uh, armored light armored vehicles that are being exported to Saudi Arabia, I believe their operations account for about 11% of all the Canadian defense industries and they employ tens of thousands of people. So, you know, this is a lot of jobs that we're that we're talking about um, that would be affected. So, you know, it's understandable that the the government is trying to uh, you know, weigh human rights, upholding human rights difficult geopolitical relationships, and then also trying to minimize the impact on the Canadian economy. Are they really taking the the right balance there? Um, that obviously is, is up for dispute, um, but they're definitely this definitely is a, a, a complicated topic. There's a lot of factors that have to go into these decisions. Yeah, on the diplomatic side as well, I, I think you looked into that in the article as well, that uh, that there are some diplomatic concerns here. But one of the things I found interesting is there was, uh, you sort of demystified one thing, which was, it's often been said that, that um, you know, you know that that's canceling these, these contracts would be difficult, but you found that in fact, it wouldn't be if they wanted to, if the will was there, that, that they could stop these exports pretty quickly if need be. Yeah, uh, well, so there is one one aspect about the Saudi contract in particular um, that uh, Trudeau has pointed to as the kind of main reason um, why he he won't cancel the contract, and that is because um, he hasn't disclosed the exact price tag of, of of doing this, and partially because the the Saudi Arabia contract in particular has really strict confidentiality clauses in it. But supposedly, according to Trudeau, it would cost Canada over a billion dollars as a cancellation fee to stop this 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 uh, contract with Saudi Arabia. You know, many people might, you know, might say, well, it's a billion dollars, but that's the that's the price of standing up for human rights. That's specific to the Saudi, the, the Saudi contract. But obviously, as I've talked about, there's lots of other countries, um, lots of other authoritarian countries with questionable human rights records that Canada still has contracts with um, that don't necessarily have these penalty fees. For example, Russia, Belarus, um, Canada has actually stopped military exports to certain countries because of concerns about what those weapons are being used for. It is kind of interesting to see which countries Canada has uh, stopped those exports towards and which ones they're continuing to uh, work out deals with. So to wrap it all up, I mean, I guess what you found was a lot more a lot higher percentage of sales to authoritarian regimes than perhaps you expected to find. Um, and, you know, the Saudi one as well, the one it clearly accounts for a lot of it, right? Uh, but not the only one. And that is a bit of a surprise. 
Yes, absolutely. I think that's the 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 best summary of the what I kind of took as the the main takeaway from my analysis. You know, Saudi consistently every year was um I think was the largest recipient after the the United States for exports, but Algeria, for example, I think in just the past year, I think it was in the top 15 or top 10 of all countries that received uh military exports. Yes, it is very much uh, a, a trend that we see with with multiple authoritarian countries, not just Saudi Arabia. And what would you like to see done with with the research that you did? Uh, what uh, what would you like to see uh, as a result of this? The, you, you know, you've raised an interesting fact. Um, what would you like to see done with it? Yeah, I mean, I, I just hope that um, it'll bring back the conversation about what that proper proper balance is between you know protecting Canadian jobs, standing up for human rights abroad. And I think there there was a lot of media attention in 2018, but it's since kind of died off since then, even though the exports have continued. You know, Trudeau really has uh, adopted kind of a, a image of being really pro-human rights in his foreign relations. So I think, you know, I'm just happy that there's a bit more discussion going on, looking at the actual reality of what's happening, um, going a little bit more below just the surface of, you know, what the, what the government's rhetoric might be. Okay, Schneider, great work. Thank you so much for your time and explaining it tonight. Thank you so much.